0: Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children, also known as Sick Kids, is a world-renowned pediatric hospital. Its education and research have led to many great discoveries and has bred some of the best pediatric doctors and nurses not only in the country, but on the planet. However, there's a dark past to this hospital that was seemingly swept under the rug and forgotten about for almost three decades. What most don't know is several babies were murdered at this hospital. And those cases still remain unsolved today. This short series will be a bit different from my last season of episodes. I will be diving into this case, giving all the juicy details and theories on who was suspected to be responsible for the deaths of 43 infants on the cardiac wards 4A and 4B between July, 1980 and March, 1981. This is part one of three of the Sick Kids Murders. The series of episodes will contain graphic depiction of infant deaths, medical terminology, and descriptions of autopsies that may disturb some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I would also like to preface this episode with saying a lot of this information you are about to hear is from the 326-page Grange Inquiry document, but I will also be adding a lot of my own opinions, theories, and skepticisms to provoke thought. I wanna stress that I am not an expert. Although I am very familiar with all the medical terminology, I am not a nurse, doctor, or medical professional. For the purpose of this episode, I will be referring to the Hospital for Sick Children as either the hospital or SickKids. Founded in 1875 by Elizabeth McMaster, SickKids was just a small 11-room house that grew over the years into the country's largest child-based research hospital. In 1968, the hospital opened one of the first ICU centers exclusively for care of critically ill newborns and premature babies in North America. Now located in downtown Toronto on University Avenue and affiliated with the University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine, it's safe to say its reputation for education and childcare is bar none. The hospital's cardiology division is one of the most respected and dynamic in the world. Many children from across the country and globe with critical heart problems or abnormalities are brought to sick kids to be given the best care and greatest chance of survival. The reputation of the hospital makes it almost unbelievable that there was a full-fledged murder investigation in the early 80s and a nurse was charged with the murders of four babies. Eventually those charges were dropped and the cases still sit cold. If you are around to remember this case, you'll know the nurse who was under fire. And if you followed any updates, you'll also know the bizarre theory of a chemical being responsible for the deaths. We'll look into both during the next episodes. So... What exactly happened in those eight months between July 1980 and March 1981, when infants were starting to die at a rapid pace and concentrated in the adjoining wards of 4AB and in the early hours of the morning? The Grange Inquiry into the Mysterious Deaths was launched in April 1983. What the crazy part is, it wasn't until the death of 24-day-old Kevin Paxi on March 12, 1981, that suspicions even arose. He was due to be released in just two days. To say his death was unexpected is an understatement. I do want to note here that Kevin was the only baby that didn't actually die on the ward, but his onset of fatal symptoms did start on Ward 4A before being transferred to the ICU. You see, Kevin wasn't really that sick. He was originally admitted to a hospital in Hamilton where he had a rough period, but with treatment seemed to be improving. He was diagnosed with proximal atrial tachycardia, or in layman's terms, periods of excessively high heart rate. Unlike a lot of the other children, his heart was structurally normal. He was sent to Sick Kids for more investigation onto why he has this rapid heart rate, thinking it may be some sort of congenital condition where the heart appears normal, but there's damage somewhere causing the heart not to be able to regulate its rate at times. The only small concern upon admission was Kevin's struggle at the hospital in Hamilton with high potassium levels. When these were measured at SickKids, they were within normal limits. He was given one dose of digoxin at Hamilton and one maintenance dose when he arrived at SickKids, as well as a diuretic. Within a few short hours of arriving at the hospital, Kevin suddenly declined rapidly. He had bouts of tachycardia, which is a fast heart rate, followed by bouts of bradycardia, which is a low heart rate. The nurse on duty, Susan Nellis, noticed the decline in baby Kevin. Only a couple hours previously, he was happy, alert, and she could see he was going downhill fast. The decline was noted at around 4 a.m. when the baby became lethargic and wouldn't feed. The senior cardiologist was notified and arrangements were made for Kevin to be transferred to the ICU. The attending doctor did originally suspect digoxin toxicity and put a hold order on that drug. Kevin was stabilized for about an hour, but at 8.45 a.m., he went into atrial fibrillation and over the course of an hour of resuscitation efforts, Kevin went into cardiac arrest and died. Kevin's father, Kevin Garnett, had an emotional outburst at Kevin's doctor, Senior Cardiologist Dr. Rodney Fowler. His son was not supposed to die. He was due to come home in two days. Dr. Fowler, concerned with Garnett's reaction, reached out to coroner Dr. Tepperman to see if he wanted to launch an inquiry on the death and perform an autopsy. After hearing the details and the family's concerned, he agreed it would be beneficial to do an autopsy the results revealed no abnormalities dr fowler decided to do his own digging into the little boy's death and what was odd is he found kevin's digoxin levels were 13 times higher than normal limits Before we go any deeper into the story, I want to explain the drug that will be frequently referred to as the suspected murder weapon in these cases. Digoxin, sold under the brand name Lanoxin, is a heart medication frequently used to treat atrial flutter, afib, and heart failure in both adults, children, and infants. It was available on open shelves within the hospital and came in the form of elixir, tablet, and ampules for IV use. There were records kept for this drug, but they were destroyed every three months. Only RNs were allowed to administer orally via elixir to the babies. Intramuscular injections were painful and IV administration was normally only given to older children or adults as it contained five times the concentration. The drug works by slowing the heart rate down and makes it easier for the heart to pump blood through the body. Essentially, it makes the heart stop working so hard while still allowing it to be efficient at providing the body with sufficient blood. It increases the heart contractions and slows the electrical conduction between the atria and ventricles. It's very effective in treatment of abnormally rapid rhythms, such as the ones mentioned. It's important to understand how this medication works. If an infant gets overdosed by this medication, it can cause the heart rate to slow down too much and cause a heart attack. In some of the cases I'll explore, the medication was actually contraindicated for the baby, meaning if they received this medication, it would cause great harm, no matter what dose. The other thing to know is the medication has a low therapeutic index, meaning the dosage has to be precise and the patient should be monitored once it's given because the margin of the therapeutic dose and overdose is very small. Generally, it is not tested within autopsy toxicology reports due to the fact that it's difficult to measure, it does not sit in the bloodstream, and it only works once it has left the bloodstream and binds to tissues. It would only be tested for if requested or if toxicity was suspected, which was extremely rare. After the discovery by Dr. Fowler, the supervising pathologist ordered a post-mortem digoxin test, the first time in his career he's ever done this. This revealed abnormally high levels, and due to the complicated way of testing for the drug and the multitude of false positives that happened through this testing, the pathologist decided to send the samples off to a few different facilities to be tested and validated. All three testing facilities, including the Center for Forensic Science, came back as at least three to four times the therapeutic level in both the blood and tissue samples. The final autopsy report read the cause of death to be due to a toxicity based on the high levels found right before his death and the postmortem levels. Of course, this cause of death was suspicious. Although Kevin did receive a dose of the drug upon admission, the levels tested after were within normal limits but the level tested at 6.30 a.m. before the hold order was made revealed higher than normal. So why was this? Well, there were a few different theories. The first theory was that the dioxin levels weren't correct, and there was an error in the calculating of the levels. Since the tissue and blood samples were tested at three separate facilities and all came back with toxic levels, that theory was proven incorrect the autopsy did reveal elevated potassium levels. It was thought the elevated potassium levels could have caused the digoxin level to rise, but not all of the expert testifying at the Grange inquiry could agree on this. What they could agree on was the elevated levels of digoxin could cause the potassium levels to rise, and almost all of the experts could agree that the cause of death was in fact digoxin toxicity. I'd like to note here Dr. Tepperman received a call on March 20th from Dr. James Minear, who was a staff pathologist at the hospital who was concerned after hearing about Kevin's cause of death. Before Kevin, Dr. Manier did an autopsy on another baby, Janice Estrella, after she died on January 11th of the same year. She was only four months old and her autopsy revealed such high digoxin levels that he thought the lab had to have made a mistake. During Janice's autopsy, there were two post-mortem blood samples taken, one of which was tested several times and every time revealed digoxin levels that were more than 20 times the highest permitted dose. This finding was explained away by reporting it was either produced from a contaminant or digoxin-like substance that was reading as digoxin or a result of a mathematical error. It was ignored and not followed up on. After hearing this, Dr. Tepperman was convinced this was not a coincidence. The levels reported for Janice was a huge red flag. There were now two babies on the same ward who died from digoxin overdose. He was also concerned that the hospital waited two months before informing him of Janice's death. If it wasn't for Dr. Maneer calling him after hearing about Kevin's death, he may never have known. The next day, Dr. Tepperman calls the chief coroner, Ross Bennett, and after several attempts finally gets through to him and advises him about the disturbing deaths. Dr. Bennett informs the hospital officials later that day and reports, quote, it seems like we weren't telling them anything new. They basically told him they have already investigated 20 deaths because of a morale problem among the nurses. So no need to worry about it, but Tepperman was not persuaded. The conclusion of his death still wasn't enough to launch an investigation. There was another baby after Kevin, Alana Miller, who died with high digoxin levels on March 21st. Digoxin was then deemed a controlled drug and was to be locked away and only administered by following strict procedures. Nurses were ordered to remove the drug from all crash carts, but there was none located on the crash carts. Procedures put in place to help control the administration was it was to only be dispensed by the head nurse or team lead. Supply was to be counted at the beginning and end of every shift, and signatures from two nurses was required upon each vial dispensed. It wasn't until 14-week-old Justin Cook died 10 days after Kevin on March 22, 1981, from digoxin toxicity that police were notified. We will dive deeper into why Justin's passing was one that triggered the full police examination into the mysterious deaths on the next episode. The first thing I wondered was, if Kevin Carnett hadn't made such an enormous and justified fuss about Kevin's passing, would an investigation or realization that all of these deaths were connected even have been a thought? Would the hospital have realized something was potentially sinister going on in this cardiac ward? Mm. It's really difficult to say, as some of the other parents didn't question their children's deaths. This wasn't for a lack of sadness or distress, but because they were extremely sick babies and most weren't expected to survive long-term. Did the person responsible make a fatal error in killing Kevin, choosing him instead of a sicker baby? That's a question we may never know the answer to. On the next episode of Sick Kid Murders, I'll be exploring the investigation details, the timeline created by police, and deeper dives into the most suspicious deaths, which includes Janice, Kevin, and six other babies. You will not want to miss it. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go rate and review on Apple Podcasts. If you're not already, go follow me on Cold Canada Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. You can find cold canada on your preferred podcast platform just search cold canada unsolved murders or follow the link in the episode notes my name is heather curran and this has been cold canada